To stay informed of the latest updates, please follow at Germaniapod on Twitter and Instagram. You can always reach me directly by emailing gdupodcast at gmail.com. I'm sorry there was no episode last week, but I contracted a breakthrough case of COVID and have been working on recovery. I had been debating on getting a booster vaccine, and now I'm kicking myself for putting it off. If my voice sounds funny, that's why. Hello. Welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 7. Dekebulus. More like Dededalus. In January of 98 AD, Trajan became the emperor of Rome. Trajan looms as a giant over any history of Rome. Between his military successes, his public works, and his management of the Senate and the provinces, I consider Trajan the greatest of the Roman emperors. His extensive military success marked the final time that Rome was really expanding. Almost any map of Rome shown in textbooks is noted as Rome at its greatest extent, 117 AD. Those were the Roman borders Trajan established. And unfortunately for Decebalus, Dacia was one of the first places Trajan had his eye on. Trajan had been stationed along the Rhine as the governor of Germania Superior when he received word of his ascension. It took him ten months to finally make his way to Rome to accept his crown from the Senate, and a ceremonial reminder of the republic that Rome once was. He spent that time touring the provinces along the Rhine and Danube rivers. Cassius Dio writes that in the case of the Danube provinces across from Dacia, this was more than just a cursory inspection. Dio says, quote, He took into account the Dacians' past deeds and was grieved by the amount of money they were receiving annually, and he also observed that their power and pride were increasing, unquote. When looking back on Trajan's conquest of Dacia, the three primary motivations that historians point to are, number one, the Dacians posed a threat to the empire. Their raids along the Danube put major costs on the state in terms of lives lost, rebuilding efforts, and troops kept along the border. Number two, Trajan was seeking to legitimize his reign and win glory for himself and the empire. Expanding across the Danube would bring prestige as the first major expansion since Britannia more than 50 years earlier. Number three, the empire, and therefore Trajan, was in debt following the military expenses and building projects during the reign of Domitian. Trajan wanted the spoils of Dacia, particularly their gold mines. From my perspective, while the truth is almost certainly a combination of all three, I put the most weight on the third reason. To the first, while Dacia posed a threat to the empire, it was certainly not the biggest threat that they faced, and was not an existential threat that could topple Rome's place in the world order. Additionally, it is hard to see how Trajan thought it would be easier to secure a border on the north of the Danube, rather than reinforcing the existing border and using a mixture of diplomatic carrots and sticks to keep peace while looking for ways to undermine Decebalus. On the other hand, modern historians believe the population of Dacia at this time was around 1 million people, and that they could field an army of 200 to 250,000 warriors if necessary. 
Decebalus was also actively pursuing alliances with other neighboring tribes against the Romans, particularly the Sarmatians from along the coast of the Black Sea. If the Romans had to deal with military engagements in the east, or along the Rhine, or in Britannia, potential Dacian raids across the Danube could become a major issue. As the power of Decebalus was still rising, it was likely that over time it would only become more difficult to remove him. The Treaty of 89 AD was embarrassing for Rome, which meant it was now embarrassing for Trajan. While Trajan was an established military commander and the chosen successor of his predecessor Nerva, he had two potential minefields he had to navigate at the start of his reign. Number one, Trajan was the first provincial emperor in Roman history. While there are still disputes today about the exact Romanness of his parents, Trajan was born in Hispania, and at the time was considered a provincial. While not a complete unknown, he was not well known in Italia proper. At a minimum, the senatorial class did not consider him a Roman in the same mold of his predecessors. And while in the long run this was not really an issue for Trajan during his reign, there was no guarantee of that from the start. Avenging the earlier defeats to Decebalus was exactly the type of action that would win over the vain, rich, old men of the Senate, who didn't have to worry about themselves or their families being sent to fight across the Danube. Number two, his predecessor, Nerva, only donned the purple after the assassination of Domitian. He was something of a compromise selection, and almost immediately dealt with a threat to his reign when the Praetorian Guard, the Emperor's personal bodyguards, held Nerva hostage until he ordered the execution of Domitian's killers. The Praetorians had such respect for their sacred role as protectors of the emperor that they felt that it was their duty, blah, 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 blah. Really, the Praetorians always liked Domitian because he paid them well to ensure their loyalty. Nerva was swept into power quickly after Domitian's assassination, so once the guards saw that he was not taking steps to punish Domitian's killers, they had a fit. It was after this episode that Nerva named Trajan his heir, and then had the good sense to get sick and die before he had to deal with any more challenges to his rule. While Trajan was popular among the legions, he was unknown to the Praetorian Guard, and was cho the choice of someone who came to power in a coup against an emperor they had, if not loved, then at least been well paid by. So avenging the loss in Dacia and securing money to pay the legions, including the promised donative to the Praetorians, was just the solution Trajan needed. He spent the years 98 to 99 in the region drilling troops and building a new fortress on the left bank of the Danube across from Pannonia, while also rebuilding existing fortresses to ensure they would make for good crossing points for Rome and strong defenses against the Dacian countercrossing. Trajan also began engaging in some of the great engineering projects that came to define his reign, almost as fully as his military conquests. First, he had a canal rebuilt along a particularly treacherous section of the Danube to allow Roman vessels easier patrol of the entire river. Near the modern city of Djurjap, Serbia, the Danube narrows and water flow increases to nearly 20 kilometers per hour through a rocky section that was nearly impossible to navigate with the ships of the period. By digging out a canal, Roman ships could exit the main flow of the river and were then pulled by oxen while still floating until they could rejoin the Danube. 
In March of 101 AD, Trajan was ready and asked the Senate to approve an invasion of Dacia. He took four legions across the Danube and began a slow advance toward the capital. Trajan was more cautious than previous Roman generals and sent advanced scouts to avoid falling into a trap like the one that doomed Fuscus. A third battle was fought at Tappi, and it was a much more difficult battle than Trajan expected, with both sides taking heavy casualties. While the battle was technically a Roman victory, that was only because the Dacians withdrew from the field as a storm kicked up. In one of those stories that are too good to fact check, Cassius Dio wrote that the Romans suffered so many casualties that they ran out of bandages, leading Trajan to tear up his cloak for replacements as he visited the wounded. Facing a stalemate, Trajan retreated back across the Danube as winter set in to rest his army and regroup. Decebalus attempted to press his advantage by leading his army across the frozen Danube in the winter of 102, but cracks in the ice led to a significant portion of his army falling through and drowning. After some initial skirmishing saw his army easily pushed back, Decebalus led his warriors back to Dacia to prepare for the Roman offensive that would come with the spring. With morale low among his people after the tragedy on the Danube, Decebalus was looking for a way to take the wind out of the Roman sails and buy himself some time to regroup. With options limited, Decebalus preempted Trajan's invasion by offering his surrender. Since he could not really justify taking soldiers into battle in a region that had given them so much trouble over the preceding two decades, when the enemy was offering surrender, Trajan negotiated a settlement with Decebalus on much the same terms as the previous treaty with Domitian 13 years earlier. The Dacians tore down their defensive walls facing the Roman border, ceded a buffer zone on the north side of the river to Rome, promised to surrender all Roman deserters, and agreed to serve as a client kingdom and barrier between Rome and Germania. Trajan recaptured the lost legionary standards of Fuscus from the previous war. As before, Decebalus asked for Rome to provide men and money to help him fortify the northwestern border of his territory. Perhaps suggesting that he did not fully trust Decebalus, in 103 AD, Trajan ordered his chief architect, Apollodorus of Thrace, to begin constructing a bridge across the Danube so the Romans would have easier access if they needed to bring an army across in the future. One of the great engineering achievements of antiquity, Trajan's Bridge, as it was known, was completed in 105 AD near the modern city of Drobeta Ternu Severin in Romania. With 20 masonry pillars sunk into the riverbed, the bridge was over 1,100 meters long, or just under three quarters of a mile, and 15 meters wide, about 50 feet. Though it was finally torn down in the 270s by Emperor Aurelian when he abandoned the Dacian province, Trajan's bridge was the longest bridge built by humans for over a thousand years, finally surpassed by the Song Dynasty in China with the completion of the Anping Bridge across the Xijing River in 1151 AD. By 105, with the bridge completed, Trajan was ready to invade Dacia again. The cause seems to be that Decebalus was not living up to all the terms of the previous treaty. The defensive fortifications facing Rome were still intact, and he still harbored Roman defectors. 
At the same time, Decapolis continued to try and sow enmity against the Romans among the other tribes along the Danube, and bring them into alliance with him. Per Cassius Dio, Decapolis went to these tribes, quote, declaring that if they abandoned him, they themselves would be imperiled, and that it was safer and easier for them, by fighting on his side before suffering any harm, to preserve their freedom, end quote. Decapolis proceeded to occupy some of the territory of the neighboring Azigis, a Sarmatian tribe that was aligned with Rome. But Decapolis's defeat in the previous war led the other tribes to doubt the wisdom of aligning with him at this point. Additionally, many Dacian nobles began to calculate that peace under an emperor in Rome was preferable to war under a Dacian king. With his chances of success dwindling, Decapolis became desperate and started taking high-risk, high-reward actions. He sent Roman deserters in his camp on a mission to assassinate Trajan. His conspirators were sent into Moesia as Trajan was planning his invasion, with hope that they would be able to get access to him by pretending to have vital information necessary for the war effort. Unfortunately for them, one of the party was arrested and confessed the details of the plot under, let's say, enhanced interrogation. With this plot foiled, Decebalus next contacted a Roman general, Longinus, alleging that he wanted to negotiate his surrender under terms acceptable to Rome. When Longinus came to meet Decebalus, he was taken prisoner. Decebalus then sent word to Trajan that he would release the general unharmed if Trajan surrendered the territory he took from Dacia during the last war, left the region, and paid a war indemnity to cover the costs of the destruction from Rome's previous campaign. This is, obviously, a completely ludicrous idea, which really shows the desperation Decabalus must have felt by this point. Rather than simply declining the offer, Trajan sent back a non-committal response forcing Decebalus to divide his efforts between trying to negotiate while also preparing his defenses. Longinus, however, made the whole negotiation moot. A freedman who was with him when he was taken prisoner was able to slip the general some poison undetected. Longinus then suggested to Trajan that he send the freedman to negotiate on his behalf, as he might have more success than a Dacian negotiator. Decabalus agreed, and once the freedman was safely away, Longinus took the poison. Decabalus was furious at this point. He now sent a message to Trajan, saying he would return the general's body and free ten other prisoners if Trajan sent the freedman back to be punished for his duplicity. But the game was up for Decabalus. Trajan invaded Dacia, and while the fighting was difficult, enough of Decabalus's allies had abandoned him that the Romans were soon outside the capital fortress at Sarmigustusa Regia. After the Romans' first assault was repulsed, Trajan was alerted to the fact that all of the city's water was supplied by a series of aqueducts. The Romans destroyed the infrastructure, and with no source of fresh water, the city surrendered a few days later. Decebalus and his family had slipped out of the capital before the surrender, but a cavalry unit chased them down. Knowing what happened to the defeated leaders of Roman enemies, Decebalus committed suicide rather than allowing himself to be captured. His severed head was sent to Trajan, who had it forwarded back to Rome and put on display, another barbarian king who was crushed by the mighty emperor. 
Decebalus, more like Dedalus, Trajan almost certainly did not say upon viewing the head of his fallen enemy. Trajan had the Dacian capital leveled and built a new capital 40 kilometers away. Dacia was the first but not the last of Trajan's conquests, although it was the only one that was not undone by his successor Hadrian in an effort to make the borders more manageable and defensible. There are some stories that Trajan had the native Dacians massacred upon his final victory, which seems to be supported by the fact that there are no records of native Dacian names in the historical record after the conquest. But there is recent archaeological evidence that shows continuation of Dacian pottery and other artifacts that suggests it is more likely that a. some Dacians were resettled into other provinces, b. many Roman colonists were brought into Dacia, and c. both in and out of Dacia, native Dacians abandoned their traditional names and took on more Latinized names. This has obviously been a component of immigrants immigrating, or being forced to integrate, into new communities across time and geography. We see that influence to this day, as the modern Romanian language shows strong Romance roots from the time it's spent as a Roman province. Ancient writers claimed that 500,000 Dacians were taken as slaves, though modern historians estimate the number to be closer to 100,000. That was still enough to contribute to a glut in the early 2nd century slave market. Trajan reorganized the provinces along the Danube following this conquest, establishing more militarized border provinces since they now needed to protect territory across the river. This need for protection started immediately, as the Azigis petitioned Trajan to return the lands around the Bennett Valley to them that the Kebalus had previously seized. For whatever reason, Trajan refused, which started a process of the Azigis turning away from Rome. The colonization of Dacia brought a large number of Romans into the province, particularly to take over the vast mining operations in the area. I mentioned earlier the immense mineral wealth of the area, particularly the gold and silver reserves. Between control of the mines and the surrender of Decebalus's vast reserves, the Romans exported more than 165,000 kilograms of gold and twice as much silver from the region. While converting between modern and ancient currency is not an exact science, as of this writing in November 2021, the spot price for one kilogram of gold is $60,256.88 American, making the weight of gold extracted from Dacia worth close to $10 billion. Adding the value of the silver, you have over 10.2 billion U.S. dollars of precious metal brought into the empire. Given the intense building projects that were undertaken from the reign of Domitian through Hadrian, the addition of this wealth was critical to funding those projects while limiting the need for increased taxes or property confiscation to cover the bills. Dacia makes an interesting comparison to Germania during the 1st century A.D., both regions were separated from the Romans by strong rivers. They had a decentralized tribal political structure. Dacia had more abundant natural resources and mineral wealth, a more moderate climate, and was further along the road towards developing more complex industry around larger cities. Archaeological evidence shows the grain stores and complex aqueduct and reservoir systems that would not have been out of place in Rome, showing the influence of Roman deserters in Asia. 
Germania was far less mineral rich and depended on basic agriculture as their primary industry. Both were warrior cultures that posed a considerable threat to Rome when they could be united under a single ruler, though that was difficult to maintain due to their inherent distrust of centralized authority and the machinations of Roman politicians. Despite their similarities at the time, Dacia and Germania would develop along different paths over the next several hundred years, one inside of Rome and the other on the periphery. There are obviously a lot of complex reasons as to why Dacia was incorporated while Germania was not. Rome's critical defeat in the Tudorburg Forest came at the end of Augustus' long and celebrated reign. He did not have anything left to prove, and his decision to leave the border at the Rhine was honored because of who he was. On the other hand, Decebalus' victories came over Domitian, an unpopular leader without much of a military track record. The Dacian Treaty was immediately seen as an embarrassment to everyone, so even though it had stood for nearly a decade by the time Trajan took over, it was not a precedent that he felt obligated to continue. He won great acclaim by avenging the earlier defeat and making Dacia submit. If you are a big fan of the great man theory of history, that may be enough to, of an explanation. And while the personalities of those involved clearly matter, to me the critical factor was simply that the riches of Dacia were too big a prize for the Romans to ignore. The gold, silver, iron, and salt made fortunes and funded building projects that we still stand in awe of today. Hadrian was unpopular for abandoning Trajan's other conquest, but he did it because he thought that the benefit was not worth the cost. But after pulling the resources out of Dacia for more than a decade, there was no way he could abandon that territory. Among people who study modern nation development, there is a theory regarding the so-called resource curse. The resource curse refers to the fact that many mineral-rich nations, and in modern times especially oil and gas-rich nations, seem not to reach the total potential they seem to have from an economic and political point of view. Despite their natural wealth, they remain poorer and with a more authoritarian form of government. The argument is basically, since these nations can fund their government expenses and social programs using the profits from their natural resources, it is easier to put programs in place to guarantee a sufficient standard of living, and so there is less pressure on developing a more open society with more democratic norms, because the general population can benefit from new programs that they are not taxed to support. Additionally, investments focused on exploiting the natural resource crowd out investments in other areas and pull the workforce away from a more diversified economy. The government then has an incentive in propping up this industry at the expense of all other considerations, further preventing development. In this way, the resource curses the population. What I think the comparison of Dacia and Germania highlights is that in addition to all those internal factors, a poorer country with abundant natural resources is always going to be a target for interference and influence from more powerful neighbors that are only interested in stable resource extraction. In ancient times, we can see this more clearly because of the invasion and occupation that was involved. And certainly colonial powers through the 19th and into the first half of the 20th century continued to use conquest to that same end. 
But the modern world is more complex, and it does not need to be foreign soldiers that do the invading. When we say investment in the natural resource is crowding out investments in other industries, that investment is typically coming from foreign banks. Foreign nations want to make sure their investments are repaid, and a leader who owes his position to your support is more likely to pay you back. To the extent that natural resources are a curse to a developing nation, the curse comes from abroad as much as from within. The Dacian conquest marks a significant turning point for the Roman interactions with the tribal groups within Germania. So far, Roman-German interactions are defined by a Roman desire to conquer and subjugate the tribes and bring more territory and wealth into their empire, while the tribes did their best to expel the Romans from their territory and maintain as much independence as possible. After Trajan's reign, the dynamics started to change as the tribes became more accustomed to Roman culture and luxuries, and the Romans went from expanding to defending their borders against these barbarians. In our next episode, we will start exploring how the relationship evolved, leading up to the reign of Marcus Aurelius and the Marcomannic Wars.